Association on the brink of retirement. Um, but so that's the Nevin part. And then, of course, if it's the Nevin and Fred podcast and I'm the Nevin part, then we must have the other part, of course, is my podcasting procrastinator partner, <laughs> Mr. Fred Reich. <laughs> I forgot I was supposed to come up with something by this program, Nevin. Uh, uh, I'll keep working on it, though. Well, Let's, you know, hello everybody. Glad to be here with you. What we have today is a program that is the equivalent of a root canal. We are going to talk about ERISA litigation, the good, the bad, and the ugly. With that introduction, Nevin, back to you. A root canal. My <laughs> goodness gracious. Um, anyway, yeah, okay. So it's a little painful. Uh, certainly if you're in the chair being uh, probed. But, um, but of course, we get the, uh, the joy of just sort of talking about this stuff. But there is a lot going on. Um, and there's been a real shift. I think we've talked about some of this in, in some of the prior podcast, um, sort of a shift in, in the burden of proof uh, status and essentially going back to um, a case that involved Oshkosh. Um, the, the standard seems to have been raised, this, this, the notion that uh, in order to have established a plausible argument in order to get past that motion to dismiss and actually go to discovery and trial. There's a heightened, or what seems to be anyway to me, a heightened level of things that you've got to establish uh, by way of proof to get there. Um, and most particularly as it relates to record-keeping services. Now again, you know, when it gets into excessive fees, these plaintiffs have largely uh, alleged that you've uh, that the the plan fiduciaries have embraced fund options which are more expensive than they had to be. Maybe it's the wrong share class. Maybe it's active management instead of passive management. Um, but essentially argued that the investments that you've chosen are are more expensive than they had to be, and therefore you're costing participants money and putting their retirement at risk. And the other part of this, which is kind of a sidecar issue, is they've also alleged that you've done the same thing on record-keeping fees. And they have argued that there are plans out there which are the same size as the plan in question here. And the argument presented in nice little tables is that plans of comparable size, whether based on assets or based on the number of participants in the plan, that they are paying far less than what the plan in question is being alleged to pay. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a one-two punch on the excessive fees, too much on investments, too much on record keeping, it all sort of taking money out of participants' pockets and putting their retirement at risk. Um, do you got anything on that you want to say, Fred, before we get to this new plausible standard? Um, you know, the, the uh, I think the judge, judges maybe, but one judge in particular said competitors are not comparators. Uh, meaning that just because somebody competes with you for business, in this case as a record keeper, that doesn't mean that their services are so comparable to your services that you can compare their pricing to your pricing. Uh, so what I think the judges are saying there is that, that, you know, that, that we aren't going to accept 
that that other numbers are valid just because there are numbers that other folks charge. We need to know that it's for similar services and substantially similar material services. Um, you know, and, and, and in a way, Nevin, that's not particularly a surprise. If you go back, um, I'm sure we could find other DOL guidance out there somewhere that says that in evaluating what you're paying for services to a plan, you have to look at the, I, I don't know how they'd word it, but essentially the quality and quantity of services that you're receiving. So it, it, it hasn't come up before in the record keeper context, and maybe there's some belief that they are all comparators, that is that they're substantially similar. Um, but it's here now, and it's here now in a number of cases. So that's going to change. I think it'll particularly burden what you and I call the copycat complaints, the copycat law firms, referring to people who are trying to uh, maybe have, without the sophistication and creativity of Schlichter, are trying to follow in his footsteps. So no, that, that's my reaction to it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, as I said, it's it's gotten easy. And if you think about it, um, you know, the judiciary's not really, most of them really got an opportunity to sort of understand, if you will, kind of how the business works, how record keeping operates, how, you know, I mean, I, I think um, sometimes we forget just how broad a perspective of, of uh, knowledge the judges are expected to have when it comes to, to sort of looking at these things and weighing them out and, and trying to decide, you know, what's what's provided a sufficient case. Um, I do think most of us like in the industry would would acknowledge that that a fundamental part. And I'm pretty sure I could put a link to the Department of Labor statement on this um, was that the, the notion of determining what's a reasonable fee requires a, a comparable assessment about the services that you are receiving for, you know, those fees. I mean, that's that's ultimately what decides whether it's reasonable. It's not just how much you pay, it's what you get for how much you pay. And um, so suddenly, all of a sudden, the judiciary wakes up to that notion, if you will, and have, have put that out and basically said, it's not enough for you to just sort of um, put up, you know, plans of, of comparable size and just sort of assume that they're all getting the same level of services kind of thing. Now, um, on the one hand, you know, the rational part of me appreciates that. Um, on the other hand, that's got to make it a lot tougher for these cases to move past the motion to dismiss. And that does seem to be a standard that is creeping up all around the country in terms of various jurisdictions and things like that. Um, and that original case, the Oshkosh case, is routinely cited by other cases who are kind of coming to that same conclusion. So, um it, it looks like that's, you know, that's an emerging standard. And it's only been in like the last couple of years that that's been out there. So this is fairly new. And it'll be interesting to see to see how it goes forward. There have been, I think, as, as you alluded to, there has been some argument in terms of these uh, some recent cases that, yes, in fact, um, at, le at least an argument that plans of similar sizes are going to have roughly comparable or and with the phrase you just used, you know, service levels like that. And I think the question is whether whether a plaintiff's assertion of that as a as a fact would in fact be embraced by the judge and said, well, you know, since I have to to accept what you put forward, you're the you're the party the other party who's not trying to dismiss the suit. So I have to take what you say basically at face value, whether they would in fact take that or whether they might push back in a certain situation. 
Um, yeah, yeah. By the way, my that statement was uh, competitors are not comparators, uh, <laughs> and I just realized that's my alliteration for today. I was so, going <laughs> to say this. There's your alliteration. <laughs> I made it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, one thing that might be helpful to folks, Nevin, is to explain that, that you know, the, the complaint is filed. Uh, the, the next step on trying to dispose of the case is what Nevin referred to, a motion to dismiss. That, that's basically where you, the defense says to the judge, read their complaint. Accept everything they say is true, unless it's just obviously not true. Um, and then I, don't, I, the defense, don't even think they have a case if you accept everything they say. And these cases we're talking about now are being dismissed at that stage. That's literally the earliest possible stage at which you can get rid of a case. If, if that doesn't succeed, then you have uh, discovery. You have class certification, perhaps. Um, and that process is extraordinarily expensive. Uh, and so that's why the motion to dismiss is so, is so important. Then... After, after discovery and everything, you have a motion for summary judgment in which you, the, the defense probably goes to the judge and says, look at, uh, here's all the discovery we've made. Here's what we've learned from our people and from their people. Here are the facts. They don't support the complaint, dismiss the case under, under a motion for summary judgment. You spent a lot of money in these big cases. I don't even know how to quantify it, but it could easily be a million or two to get to that point in fees and costs. If that doesn't work, then the next thing is to either settle the case to get out of it. If you see any settlements for one, two, three, four million in these big cases, those are cost of defense settlements. There's nobody indicating any wrongdoing at that point. That's just, let's get rid of this rather than paying the lawyers and the experts and so on. And then finally, there's the trial. Very few cases do we actually get trial decisions in. The greatest education of judges occurs that Nevin was referring to occurs during the trials. Uh, so I, I, I do think probably more through that uh, discovery and the motion for summary judgment phase, more and more judges are getting used to this. All it takes is one judge to have a really well-reasoned opinion. Then lawyers in future cases cite that opinion. Then it gets picked up by that judge. So it's, that seems to be what's happening now. It's growing exponentially, uh, this record keeper services concept. So... Hopefully that little explanation helps everybody, Nevin. No, I think that's a good point, um, and it's, it's good to remind people of that um, because there are stages here, and they all have cost, both explicit and in terms of timing, and uh, and it can be relatively significant, um, and it, it's, it's obviously one of the reasons for concern. Um, well, on that track, we've also had a, another set of cases that we've talked about in a previous podcast, and that's a, a series of suits, I think 12 or 13 of them in many different jurisdictions across the country, all filed against holders of the BlackRock LifePath target date funds. Um, and those of you who may have faded into your memory here, um, these are funds that were a little bit different. They were... Uh, are, they were uh, set up, they were mostly passively managed or arguably they were tied in with that, but they also had a two retirement date glide path instead of a through retirement date. And the issue that the plaintiffs brought up, they, they challenged, they basically said um, the performance on these funds is really bad. And that's indicative of the fact that you're not prudently managing these investments. And they also said, um, and that's particularly true if you compare them against what we think 
our, uh, our better benchmarks, which were basically the rest of the leading target date funds that were out there, which, as I said earlier, were uh, managed on a through retirement date glide path, meaning they were going to wind down on the assumption you would basically stay invested in that target date fund until the end of your life, as opposed to the ones that are a two retirement date. And again, the, the underlying assumption is you're going to be in that target date fund up until the point in time when you actually choose to retire, at which point you might choose to put it into annuity or, or do something else. So um, the issue is largely uh, focused on questioning the performance of these funds and seeing the uh, underperformance of these funds as being indicative of a, uh, a fiduciary breach. Again, very different from the excessive fee suits that were being charged here. In fact, I think these particular funds were, um, were competitively priced, but it was about performance and uh, challenging the benchmark that these plans had chosen to apply this to. So have I gotten everything, Fred? I bet I missed something. Um, no, I think that's pretty good. I, 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 you know, there's a lot to unpack with this case. So at first blush, Nevin, as you suggested, the, the plaintiff's attorneys said that these BlackRock target date funds underperformed. That obviously raises the question of underperformed what? And they had, uh, the plaintiff's attorneys had selected either three or four large target date funds that are through retirement and are more aggressively designed uh, and said, hey, you didn't, you, plan sponsor that picked the BlackRock TDFs, underperformed more aggressive, more volatile target date fund suites. And so then the issue becomes, is that even a fair comparison? And, and, and the judge had held no, um, that that this sort of backs into, as you said to me before the program, Devin, that, that um, it's a process issue. Uh, you have to engage in a prudent process to select and monitor target date funds. Now, you might ask, why are they suing over target date funds? I think the answer is pretty obvious. That's where the money is. Target date funds almost inevitably are going to come under more scrutiny. So if you're an advisor, the question is, does the target date fund I have recommended match the needs of this plan sponsor? Uh, so, and that is primarily an asset allocation issue uh, and the changes of asset allocation over time and the plan's Plan fiduciaries need to understand that. So again, if you're an advisor listening to this next meeting, have an with a committee, have an education meeting, and go over asset allocation and how the one they have compares to others and whether or not that's appropriate for their employees. Okay, enough of that. The folks, uh, two case, these are being dismissed, I think, readily by the courts, and I think that's appropriate. Uh, the 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 really the gist of it is, did the committee the plan fiduciaries engage in the prudent process and selecting and monitoring. And then the second thing is, what can you consider in a prudent process? Remember that old thing in the early days of technology, garbage in, garbage out? Well, if you don't consider the right things, or if you actively consider the wrong things, then you're not going to produce a prudent decision because a prudent process considers those things that a person who is knowledgeable about that issue would should consider, would want to consider. So here, among other things, uh, and I'm basing this somewhat on a couple other cases, the Intel case and the Aon part of the Lowe's case. Uh, fiduciaries are entitled to select a conservative investment or conservative suite of target date funds or a conservative lineup or an aggressive lineup based on their assessment of the needs of the covered workforce, the demographic, demographics of their workers. 
if you uh, pick a more conservative investment or lineup, and you do that in 2012, and then you're challenged over the period from 2012 to 2019, guess what? The market went up the whole time. You're going to look awful if the measurement is, what did the better funds do during that period? Uh, and the, the courts rejected that. They said, look, at these folks are selecting a lineup that matches their people. The, not only were these reasonably priced, Nevin, they were among the least expensive. They were really low priced. In fact, the plaintiff's attorney said they sacrificed performance for price. That was an allegation. <laughs> That's right. Um, and, and, and you had a competent manager. I mean, it's right for our workforce. We've got a really skilled manager. Uh, the prices are really inexpensive, and it's performing according to our expectations, if not the plaintiff's attorney's expectations. I mean, what the heck? That sounds like a prudent process to me. No. <laughs> so, having said that, I'm going to punt it back to you. Well, no, and, and to your point, these all have been, I, I don't think, you know, those of us in the industry are particularly surprised at, at the quick dismissal. Again, there are costs associated with that process and with, with going to the judge for rulings and stuff like that. Um, so the good news is they're being dismissed pretty readily. But but let me caution here. I'll read, read from one of the cases that was recently dismissed. The judge here says, plaintiffs asked the court to infer based on the quarterly charts of three and five year annualized returns they present in their complaint that defendants must have breached their fiduciary duty of prudence when they did not divest from the BlackRock TDFs. They allege no facts, however, that would tend to exclude the possibility that defendants had reasons to retain the BlackRock TDFs that were consistent with their fiduciary duties. And then basically, without that, the plaintiffs, quote, failed to raise their claim above a speculative level. Now, that's all very good and warming, but but again, what's also happening in these cases is they're giving, I think at least half of them that I've seen, they're giving them 30 days to fix that, to basically tidy that up, and, and try to flesh out that argument and make their case. So they're being dismissed, but they're leaving the door open for them to come back. So it'll be interesting to see. I, I haven't yet seen any of the ones coming back. That doesn't mean they haven't, just I haven't seen them yet. Um, so it will be curious to see. But again, you've, you've got to have that level of proof, and you've got to understand that there might be reasons that that aren't directly related to performance or performance, as you said, Fred, in a particular period of time that that would warrant a prudent decision to retain the funds. And as you said, there were plenty of, of objective reasons to look at this. Um, you know, Morningstar's reports, which the plaintiffs uh, relied on pretty heavily in making their arguments, were all sort of, you know, glowing recommendations for these funds. So it was an odd, it was an odd choice, I would say, under the circumstances. Yeah, I think, Nevin, if, if, if the committees, if they do refile, and then, uh, and then there's testimony from the committee members that we've looked at this. You know, these are more on the conservative side, but we felt that was appropriate for, uh, let's say, for our, our QDIA for defaulting employees who may be less experienced at investing, yada, yada. I mean, you know, in other words, we looked at it and we thought about it and we made a decision on what we thought was right. I, I think the courts will throw it out, uh, all these cases. Uh, as long as the committees are can, can say that they knew what was going on, they understood the asset allocation, they understood the glide path, they looked at the demographics of their workforce, they concluded that it was appropriate. Um, I, I, I don't see these getting traction. Well, from your lips to whoever's ears. <laughs> um, 
Okay, we got two more things that we want to talk about as long as we're dealing with litigation. There's some new stuff that's out there, some some relatively brand new stuff. We had uh, what I think it's fair to say was was a surprising decision from a district court in Florida. It was a, uh, a group of plaintiffs. They're basically in the annuity sales business um, who protest, who were filing suit against the labor departments, uh, specifically their explanation in two of the FAQs that came out. Um, try to help provide some context and clarity around the uh, application of our good friend PTE 202002, um, aka the fiduciary rule. And see, Fred, and you've taught me well because I no longer try to put the dash in there. Um, so there's hope for you on the alliteration front yet. Um, so, uh, you know, what they, they challenged it basically said was that, that these two FAQs, specifically FAQ 7, FAQ 15, uh, but seven is the one that they really won on, and and it, it was the one that basically uh, sort of suggested that if you were given advice to a participant with regard to a rollover, that that could in fact be seen as and or construed as the beginning of that series, that relationship, that ongoing uh, contact, that the five-part test that we've had since, what, the 70s to sort of determine fiduciary status um, that, that that was was you could you could connect those dots if you will uh, the uh, particularly the annuity sales providers although ostensibly advisors who who have worked outside of the retirement fund complex also probably you know looked at this and said you know what it's it's one issue you know I'm just I'm just giving them an advice on a rollover into an annuity that's one thing that's not a series of things um, and basically what they argued was that the Department of Labor went beyond its uh, uh, legal ability to do that and basically created law without going through the process and uh, and the judge agreed. Um, so, Fred, comments? Yeah. Um, the uh, Basically, the judge looked at the regulation and the statute and, and, and the definition of risk of fiduciary status talks in terms of advice to such plan. Uh, Taking that into account, I'm looking at the regulation. The judge said, "Well, gee, this you're trying the second level. That is advice to the IRA. It's not advice to such plan. Therefore, I find that particular part of Fact Seven, which is a description of what the DOL did in their preamble to 2022, uh, to be the words arbitrary and capricious. Now, you'll hear those words arbitrary and capricious." It's, they aren't quite as exciting as they sound. It just that's legalese for, and they're not alliterative at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're gonna have to work on that one. Um, but they're not. It, it doesn't really mean that the Department of Labor was arbitrary and capricious. It means that they got too far away. It's a label that they got too far away from the law and the regulation in writing that guidance. Therefore, the guidance was invalid. Uh, so, sort of, you know, where do we go from here? Well, there's a there's a case previously between two private litigants that essentially found the same thing, a federal district court case essentially found the same thing as this Florida case, except the first case didn't involve the DOL. Um, so we got a couple of judges who have looked at it and said, gee, we don't think this rule works. Now, to make a couple of things clear, one, this doesn't take away from any of the other guidance that the DOL issued about when you're a fiduciary for a plan or when you're a fiduciary for an IRA. This is just the guidance that connects the two for rollover purposes. So the rest of the DOL's interpretation continues to be both unchallenged and not rejected by courts. Uh, secondly, the, the, they also, the plaintiffs also challenged 
fact 15, frequently asked question 15, which said, here's, all, here's the, what the process looks like to make a prudent rollover recommendation if you are a fiduciary. The judge said, yeah, that looked good. They did, the judge did not throw that out. So what's been thrown out is that connection between either providing advice, let's say, to an IRA and then recommending a rollover or providing advice to uh, rollover and then advising the IRA doesn't make you, a, one does not make you a fiduciary for the other. Uh, I think the DOL will appeal it. I think Nevin said that. I agree. Uh, the DOL, I believe, is actively working on a regulation that may try to save one recommendation of a rollover to a, a plan participant, independent of what you do with it afterwards, is fiduciary advice. So I sort of feel like uh, we, 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 uh, We've, this is the first shoe has dropped, um, but don't necessarily wait for the second shoe because I think the particular shoe dropper is an octopus with multiple feet. <laughs> We're going to have shoe <laughs> after shoe after shoe dropping. So appeal could be the next shoe. A decision on a similar issue out of a court in Texas could be the next shoe. Uh, a new proposed regulation could be the next shoe. I mean, this is... We're, we're at the early stages of a journey, what, two years, year and a half? I mean, yeah. we're going to be talking about this next February. So, <laughs> so <laughs> okay, there you, you go. Heard it, you heard it here first. Yeah, um, yeah it, it's, uh, like I said, it's interesting. It's, it's probably there's things with, um, the dust is not yet settled here. Um, so I think to what you were saying to me earlier before we got on, Fred, you know, if you've got a good process and you're doing the right things in place, don't stop. Um, there we go. Um, last and certainly not least, I just want to acknowledge there is um, what seems like a flurry of litigation coming out lately uh, with regard to the Department of Labor's. I'm, I'm still inclined to call it the ESG rule, even though it pretty much has been, I don't know, purged of that focus or whatever. I mean, you know, I think I think where the Department of Labor has left us with the the new rule effective January 30th was something that basically said, and, and Brian Graff, CEO of the ARA, sat down with Tim Hauser in an hour-long interview the other day. I'll put that in the resources. And, and said, I would say, in no uncertain terms, that the only thing a fiduciary is allowed to consider when it comes to making those kind of decisions is something that's in the financial best interest of the participant. Um, said that repeatedly and, and did not mince any words and did not you know hesitate and didn't really, didn't fudge it. Um, and so when you look at the litigation, and, and we have a lawsuit by 25 um, attorneys generals, yes, I think they're all, I think it's fair to say they're all from what would be considered to be red states or Republican AGs that are kind of bringing that suit. But we had another suit uh, just yesterday afternoon brought by a couple of participants against the Labor Department, again, basically alleging, as the fiduciary rule did, that the, that the Labor Department went over, you know, went over the top of its skis when it uh, created the ESG rule and basically accused them of, of, of forcing or directing money into ESG investments to the, to the uh, fiscal uh, financial uh, detriment of participants, which doesn't seem, which, which matches up maybe with a proposal the Biden administration came out, but doesn't really seem to match the final version. Um, so I don't know if they were just, it took them a long time to get around to their filing to challenge it or, or what, but, um, but it, it's, it's like they, they haven't read the actual regulation and the stance the Labor Department has taken. Of course, 
in their defense, there was a lot of um, talk about the benefits to the environment from the White House when this new regulation was put out. So maybe they were paying attention to that as opposed to the regulation. I don't know. What do you think, Fred? Oh, I I pretty much see it the same way you do. Now, I'm getting into a little more detail. Uh, some of the allegations are they deleted the requirement to look at the pecuniary factors. Well, what they replace it with is you have to look at relevant risk and return factors. Well, you look at the definition of pecuniary factors in the Trump era regulation that says you have to focus on risk and return factors. It's like, what are we doing here? These are word games. Um, then the Trump administration rules said you can't consider like ESG type factors uh, for the selection of target date phones. As, well, they literally ask you to, you can't use it for- They literally said you the, can't have it. You, you can't, can't use do it. it. Forget about you it. You can't. Yeah, you can't have it at all. Simply cannot have it. Well, that was in their proposal. They backed off of that in the final. So, in, yeah. the, in the final rule now, it says you treat QDIAs like any other uh, right. requirement. And so, you know, it, it, it does say in the Biden era rule that you can consider employee preferences under the duty of loyalty. But it says, but you still have to satisfy the duty of care which says you can't sacrifice risk, you can't sacrifice return or increase risk in order to achieve anything other than a good risk and return profile for for the, the plan and the, and the participants. So uh, honestly, I feel like this is a, um, I feel like it's a game. I hate, well, for all of y'all who live in those red states, I'm sorry your tax dollars are going to this because I don't think it's legit. Uh, but I don't know what to say. I, I, I'm, I'm flummoxed by it because I read the regulation and it seems pretty normal now. The final version, not the, not the proposal. I agree. The proposal right. definitely put the finger on the scales. This one, I don't see that. Yeah, and and on and and Tim Tim Hauser spoke to that a little bit in terms of like you know he talked a lot about what was the difference, but I think a lot of this was born out of the their sense what they heard from people was that they read the final regulation from the Trump administration, which still used the word pecuniary. Apparently, that's not a good word to use, and um, for regardless of what it means, because to me the standard looks pretty similar, but but they felt like that that whole process there had really kind of dissuaded people from considering ESG factors as legitimate financial interest factors. And so they felt the, the need to kind of bring it back to zero. Um, but I guess in the process of bringing it back to zero, I guess it's arguable whether it's actually back to zero or went a little much the other way. Um, regardless, it's got a lot of people all excited. We have legislation emerging uh, from the Republicans to do away with it. We've got legislation just a couple of weeks, maybe in the last week, from Democrats looking to legitimize it. Um, so apparently this is going to be something we're going to end up having to talk about for a little while longer yet. So, well, as another alliteration, I think it's a tempest in a teapot. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that great note, um, we'll wrap up here today. Um, we are um, just like a month out from the Napa 401k Summit, uh, April 2nd through the 4th, San Diego, California. The Nevin and Fred podcast will be live. So I guess that makes it a live cast. Um, on April 3rd, uh, at like 1.25 in the afternoon, you definitely want to check it out. The agenda's up on napasummit.org. 
my goodness, if you have not signed up for this yet, um, boy, there's just no excuse. Some people just got to procrastinate. So go ahead and do it now. And Fred, it's good catching up again, man. Um, I look forward to seeing you soon. All right, Pepper. Thanks. Great to see you. All right, bud. Take care. Take care.